0: So let's turn together, if you're not already there, to Genesis 46. It's a really important passage in the story of Israel, and that's why Moses recorded it. And I have entitled this The Winding Road of Providence. This may uh, bring you back to uh, a song if you were a child of the 60s and 70s, but. The long and winding road of Israel's journey is uh, critically demonstrated to take a major change here, a major turn here in Genesis 46. And that, frankly, is why Moses wrote it down. Moses had a big goal through the five books that he wrote. We call those five books the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus… Numbers and Deuteronomy. Moses had grown up having been rescued out of the water. That's what his name actually literally means. He was taken out of the water. He was brought into the court of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful emperors of the globe at that time. Eventually, through circumstances, he had to leave the royal court, and he was basically put into obscurity where God if you will, discipled him, prepared him, so that as an older man, he could go back into the land of Egypt, not as a favored son of the empire, but as an outcast to lead out the slaves, to lead out the outcasts. And he wrote the five books of the beginning of our Old Testament to demonstrate to the people of Israel that they had a great God who was full of power and full of grace, and He had called them to follow Him. He gave them a covenant whereby they could relate to Him, understanding Him, maintaining fellowship with Him. And the book of Genesis in particular demonstrates how from the very beginning there was one God who made all things, and He made Israel His particular possession so that He might bless her and through her bless the entire globe. These promises show up very clearly in Abraham, the father of Israel. God promises to Abraham that He will give him a new land. He will give him a covenant. He will build through him a nation, and through that nation, bless the world. Each ensuing generation that had happened, that had come about all the way from Adam and Eve through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now his offspring— There was an expectation that at some point along the way, redemption would come to fallen humanity, that someone would come along and break the curse, reverse the curse, bring redemption and reconciliation back to mankind. It wouldn't be Abraham. It would not be Isaac, the son of promise. It would not be Jacob, who started off horribly, but by now in the book of Genesis, is doing a bit better. It wouldn't be any of his sons, though some of them turned out relatively well. There is a great anticipation of redemption, and Moses writes these things down. And he wrote them down so that Israel might hear about who her God was, that she might follow Him and love Him. And Genesis 46 is another turn, another bend in the path on the winding road of providence. Remember, as I said just a moment ago, that God told Abraham that He would give him a covenant and He would give him a homeland. As we find here in Genesis 46, He takes them out of the land, and that doesn't make much sense. And before we read together today, I want you to have one big thought in mind as we read this text together and as you listen to me teach today. And that is that God always works things together for the good of those who love Him. But He rarely does it on their timetable, and He rarely does it in the way that they would have planned. And if you have any age under your belt whatsoever, you know that to be true. Which explains why life is so frustrating and hard And why, frankly, as grown-ups, we often want to throw ourselves on the ground in the fetal position and pound our fists because we don't like the things that God does. That's why God inspired through His Spirit Moses to write these things down. Because the people of Israel, Israel himself, Jacob here, and his sons and daughters and all their offspring, now take a big bend in the path which does not make sense. And when Moses wrote these things down for Israel, things were happening to them that didn't make sense, and all kinds of things happen in our lives that just don't make sense. But through all of it, God is good, God is powerful, and God is at work, and this text will prove that to us. Let's read together. This is the eternal word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, Israel's other name, of course. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters. And his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt Jacob and his sons Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Halu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jaman, Ohad, Jochen, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamu. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shemron. The sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. By the way, if you're pregnant right now looking for good names, um, I might suggest Puva or Yob. Verse 16, The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishfi, Beriah with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bilah, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty-six persons in all. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd Is an abomination to the Egyptians. God bless to us the reading of His Word. Israel needed to know, as Moses recorded these things, that despite every bend in the path, despite the confusing, bewildering, frustrating, winding road that we all walk, that it is laced and guarded by the providence of God. And we, like they, need to know these things. So may God confirm our faith today. A simple outline. God always keeps His promises, but rarely on our timetable or according to how we design things. The first point of our look into this text today, God always keeps His promises, but rarely on our timetable or according to how we would design things. Jacob finds out, his other name being Israel, finds out that his son Joseph is alive. There's there's not much said about all the things that went through his head. There's not much said about all the discussions that he had with his sons. Remember that his sons had deceived him, leading him to believe that Joseph was dead. There had to have been some interesting dialogue that went on between Jacob or Israel and his sons trying to clear up their story. There had to have been an overwhelming amount of emotion that had gone on because, of course, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He was relieved that his son was alive. And through Joseph's authority given to him by Pharaoh, he calls his father and all of his brothers and their families to come down to live with him in Egypt that they might be preserved. And therein lies the chief point of providence in this entire text, that God is going to preserve Israel, that He will not let her die. If God treated us according to our sin, if He gave us our just deserts, we would all be doomed. Even the least of sins is an offense to God and deserves His punishment. But as you read the story of Abraham and his offspring, including Jacob and his children, there's more than just a few slight sins. They are marked and characterized by unfaithfulness again and again and again. And God is faithful to keep His promises. And if we're not for the faithful grace of God, we would all be sunk. So, what did God promise Abraham? Essentially, the same things that He had promised Noah, same things that He had promised Seth, the same things that He had promised Adam and Eve. That despite the sinfulness of humanity, God delights in showing mercy, and He will always be gracious, and He will keep His promises. As soon as the first sin occurred, as we have learned over and over, God came up and made promises. That is not the typical way that humanity acts, you and me. Typically, when we are offended, especially when we are offended greatly, our first inclination is retribution, justice. Revenge, giving people their just deserts, And though God must and will punish sin, God delights in showing mercy. It's the only way that we can explain why this world is here in the first place. God knows all things, and God can do all things, and therefore He was willing to create a world knowing full well that it would fall into sin and knowing how He would fix it. And Genesis 46 is one more little length in the path along the road. God is going to keep his promises. But Jacob, Israel, had to have wondered how that was the case. He comes now down to Beersheba, where his grandfather had made sacrifices to God. Beersheba eventually became the southern border of Israel. So Jacob now comes to sort of the, the southern marker of the land. It's kind of like whenever you leave Ohio, there's like a final sign that says, hey, you're leaving the heart of it all. And then you go into Indiana, which none of us like, of course, because we're Buckeyes. And there's like a you know, visitor center there, but it's not as good as your homeland. That, that's what happened with Jacob. Jacob's going down to a place that he knows there's supposed to be a place of refuge, and God's going to protect him there, but he's leaving home. And he had to have wondered, God, part of the things that you promised our family is that you would give us this land, that that this would be the place that you would grow us into a nation, that this will be the place of redemption, that, that you'll bring us hope and promise here, and that through us you'll bless all the nations. Why are you taking us out? Jacob also had to have wondered why God allowed him to miss all those years with his favored son. Years of loss. And in the unspoken dialogue that had to have occurred between Jacob and his sons, he had to have wondered why they had treated him so treacherously. Now, despite the fact that he finds out that his son Joseph is alive, that despite the fact that he finds out that they're actually going to be able to survive because they're going to go down into a land that has plenty, and because his son is second in command, they're going to have more than plenty... All the while, what Jacob had to have been feeling here was a sense of loss and a sense of bewilderment, of confusion. I think our lives are often like that. We live in the tension between what we know to be true and what we've experienced in the past and what we've read in the Bible. On the one hand, that's one big category. What we know to be true through personal experience and what we've learned But on the other hand, what we're currently experiencing, loss does that to us, not having the career that we thought we would have, marriages which have been marked with disappointment and estrangement, children which perhaps have wandered from God, lengthy periods of drought, maybe financially, Maybe in regard to our health, maybe in regard to just plain old happiness and equilibrium. Loss of friendships, looking back upon our childhood and seeing little light, but lots of darkness and schism and brokenness and pain. And, and therein lies a big tension, right? Right? Between what we know to be true about God and His goodness and some bright spots along the way that we personally have experienced, and yet this constant sense of loss and an awareness that if we're even in a period of brightness right now, some more loss probably is coming. And we fear what, what lies around the bend. We, we fear where the next winding of the road will lead us, and, and therefore we live in this tension and It's frustrating. Jacob's life was like that. Jacob had made horrible decisions along the way. He had four wives, and all their kids warred with one another to the point that because of that, he had lost years, decades with his favorite son. But he had contributed to that through terrible decisions of favoritism. Jacob was a person who understood God's great blessings Believed in God's great promises, but experienced great loss. Jacob's life, like ours, was marked by a winding road, one that you often can't see the next turn, and therefore it's frustrating. It's scary. Some of you today are on a stretch of road where you can see ahead, and everything seems pretty good. Tree line, the air conditioning's working pretty well. Your belly's full. You have all that you need, and you're playing like the ABC game and singing with your kids on the way to vacation. Like, that's what your life is like right now on your path. Some of you today, you're on one of those mountain passes, and it's bendy and windy, and you can see over the guardrail, and if you make a wrong turn or if the road gets icy or treacherous, you're going over the edge, and it freaks you out. Maybe your car is just sort of sputtering along today. That's what a church is like. A church is made up of people that are relatively happy and full of joy and people that are kind of miserable. And then everybody else is sort of in between. That's how we live together. And no matter where you are today, you might be in another category next week. That's how quickly our lives can change. I was down in the dumps last night. I can't even really explain why. I was making our favorite meal as a family, well, at least my boy's favorite meal and mine, and I was just in a terrible mood I can't explain it. I'm in a pretty good mood this morning. That's what life is like. God wanted Israel to know later, the nation of Israel, that her history had always been marked by by winding, by the unknown, by, by loss and gain, by gain and loss, by promise and problems. And as Jacob now comes to the southern border of his land, the land of promise, he had to have wondered what God was doing, that though there were bright things ahead, he was going to be reunited with his son, yet there was a great sense of loss. But I want to say to you again that God always keeps His promises, but it rarely happens on our timetable, and it rarely happens according to how we design things which demonstrates just how prideful we are, right? We have certain plans, the way we want things to go, and the timetable upon which we want them to happen. We have learned this as a family. We have two biological kids who we love most days. Um, But along the way, we wanted more. But for years, God didn't give us those kids. and We had a lot of pain along the way, a lot of Horrible moments trying to decide what God wanted for us next when He didn't answer the longings of our heart. Most of you know our story. Along the way, we decided to adopt. We thought we would have um, some kids home in about a year from another continent, and now we're over three years in, and they're not home yet. There have been lots of tears along the way. Just this last week, most of you know, we had the opportunity to fly to Ethiopia to meet our two new boys, I, I can't tell you how surreal it was to meet two little humans who had only seen pictures of us, who uh, walked up to us like they'd never seen us before, like proper strangers, and, and I could show you the video. If some of you are interested, you're welcome to see it, but, but um, our older one, our older adopted son walks up to his new eight-year-old brother and shakes his hand. It was really kind of surreal, you know? It's like meeting somebody in the market somewhere. Um, because Sam is so affectionate, he forced a hug out of him. And by the end of the week, we have pictures and video, There, there was a warm embrace. We look a lot like a family by the end of the week. But we had to fly home. It was tragic to leave them behind. We don't know when we'll get to go get them. We covet your prayers that it will be soon. But we've had a long and winding road as a family. We never would have chosen all the things that God has done. Had we known all the things that he was going to do on the timetable upon which he was going to do them, and the way that he decided to do them, we may not have chosen some of the decisions that we had. But that's life. We don't know how he's going to do things. We don't know when he's going to do things. We don't know why he does the things that he does and on the timetable that he chooses. It's super frustrating. It causes us, if we're being honest, to question his goodness. It, causes us, if we're being honest, to question his wisdom and his foresight. I mean, what does God's Word prove again and again, which is why we take such time to teach it and explore it? That God always does things well. Jacob, Israel, couldn't have seen all that was going on. Even as a wise older man who could sort of survey the landscape of his life, he couldn't have seen it all. Joseph didn't. His brothers didn't. As Moses wrote these things down to Israel, they had some perspective. They were at a bit of a higher elevation on the road, if you will, where they could look back and see some of the things that God had done, but they couldn't see it all, especially Israel who found themselves in the throes of slavery. And after they came out of slavery, found themselves wandering in the wilderness because of their own disobedience, wondering, why did we ever leave Egypt in the first place? Because though we were slaves, at least we had plenty of food. We knew where our next meal was coming from. Sure, Pharaoh treated us like terrible slaves. I'm going to say something I shouldn't have. But but nevertheless, we were going to survive there, basically. Our lives are like that. There's an intellectual notion that that we're going to be okay. We know that because in the past, God's always done well. As we read the Bible, we know that he does well for his people. But we have more perspective than Israel even had. And by Israel, I mean the nation. Moses wrote these things down so that the nation could look back on the landscape of their past and say, Look what God has done. God was faithful to Jacob, Israel, the man. And Moses is telling his people by extension, God will be faithful to us, Israel, as a nation because he's always been. And God's Spirit has left the Bible for us so that we can look back and by faith say, God always does things well. His Word promises us that he does. That even when the road seems so windy and bewildering, he's doing good things for us. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, if our child asks us for a piece of bread, we'd never give him a stone. If our child asks us for an egg, we wouldn't give him a scorpion or a piece of fish, we wouldn't give him a serpent. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more does our Father know how to do that? And he's always done that. And frankly, brothers and sisters, hasn't he done that for you? I know most of your stories. I know how painful a lot of your past has been. I know how painful your present is, some of you. But haven't you found along the way that that eventually, through the winding path, through the pain that God does well, that through the veil of tears, God eventually brings joy? It's easy to forget especially when the next round of suffering comes along. But I promise you, because of experience, and more importantly, because of the unbreakable word of God, that God will not waste one ounce of your suffering. God will not waste one moment of your bewilderment. God, through the winding path, will bring about what's best for you not just in spite of the winding road, but through it. Because through it, He teaches you about His goodness. He teaches you about His providence. And in providence, we mean that God is both powerful and God is good. Some of you may have convictions against things like tattoos But because some of us are so prone to forget, frankly, I think most of us, it might do well, we might do well for some of us to actually get it emblazoned on our body somewhere. And if you are against such things, make it temporary or something else. But find some way, some way to remind yourself that when the next round of bewilderment comes, when the next season of pain and suffering comes, that your God is providential. And again, that means that He is powerful, and that He is good. God will always keep His promises to you, though He often won't do it in the way that you expected. In a subtle way, as we have been finding, frankly, throughout the book of Genesis, this text points us to Jesus. Let me show you how. In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born and the wise men come to visit Him, Herod wants to wipe Jesus out because he sees him as a rival. He believes that perhaps the people will turn after this promised seed of the house of David, and he wants none of that. So he orders that all the children of that land be killed. So the wise men depart. And an angel, as he had before, appears to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, in a dream and says, Rise Interesting thing that we often forget about the narrative of Jesus' childhood, that He spent a couple of years in the land of Egypt. Matthew records here that a prophet had spoken that this would come to pass. Well, where do we find that? Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Hosea. This is in that tricky portion of our Bible that we call the minor prophets, that we often forget where they are at. So, you can find the book of Daniel, and if you can find Daniel, you can find Hosea. First of all, let's look together in Hosea 2. Just for a little bit of background, Hosea was a prophet that God called to marry a woman that he knew would commit adultery. And that day was common for a woman who committed such sins to be stoned to death. But God tells Hosea to go buy her back. To make her his own again. And Hosea's literal marriage to this adulteress would become a picture, sort of a living sermon to Israel around him that God is faithful to rescue and redeem Israel, who often treated God like an unfaithful wife. Hosea chapter 2, I want to read a few verses and then we'll turn to Hosea 11. God says, through Hosea and Hosea two one, say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. But she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. But upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who can see them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband who is better for me then than now. Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to convert, cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of her hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest. The beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. That's how God sees Israel in her unfaithfulness. That's how God sees sinners. But that's not how God leaves things. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, that is where Achan was stoned to death and all of his family for hiding some of the stuff that they stole. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. What's God going to do for Israel? Under the prophecy of Hosea, who lived a tragically difficult life, he is going to take unfaithful Israel and make her his own again. Look on Hosea chapter 11 with me, please. In Hosea 11 verse 1, the prophet records, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt... I called my son. Why does Moses write down the things that he does in the book of Genesis? To show Israel how she got to Egypt, but how all along he promised to bring her out and make her his own. Many generations later, what was she like? Well, in the time of the prophet Hosea, she was much like the first generation that came out of Egypt, unfaithful. But Israel's unfaithfulness would not be the end of the story. God would call her to Himself in faithfulness. But when would the cycle end? When would the cycle of unfaithfulness and forgiveness and and restitution and then unfaithfulness once again, when would that come to an end? It would come to an end because of Jesus. Because He would not just give them a law written on a tablet of stone, that he would etch his law on their hearts because he would make a new covenant with them. He would die for them and take their place and become their substitute, taking away their sin, punishment, and death, instead offering them his righteousness and life and the promise of being adopted into the family of God. And all those who turn to Jesus, the cycle ends. And one day Jesus will call all of His people to Himself. We see this in Hosea 11.10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. That happened to some degree as Israel came out of exile. But It will happen, of course, as each unconverted person, lost in rebellion, turns to Jesus. And one day, when He calls all of His chosen ones to Himself, and seals us to Himself, and we live eternally with Him in His kingdom. So you see, as we learned on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, as we studied from Luke 24, Jesus unfolded to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how beginning with Moses, all the Old Testament speaks about Him, whether explicitly or implicitly. And here in Genesis 46, we find an implicit mention or reference to the person of Jesus, how God would take His people down to Israel, preserve them, and bring them out, and through them bring blessing to the world, just like God would take His own Son, preserving Him from death and destruction, from Pharaoh's hand in the land of Egypt, and then bring Him out, back to Israel, and through Him bring light to the world. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the things that Israel failed to be. And as we read the book of Genesis here in Genesis 46, we find that Jesus is our hope. I tell you that whether explicitly or implicitly, the promise of Jesus, the Redeemer of His people, is everywhere, even in a text like this. And though Jacob didn't know it, as he came to Beersheba, and eventually down into the land where at the end of the text we find him reunited with his son in a warm and long embrace. This would not be the final stage for Israel. The final hope for Israel would not be Jacob. It wouldn't be Joseph. It wouldn't be Joseph's sons. It wouldn't be David. It wouldn't be Solomon. It wouldn't be Hosea and the promises temporally that he gave to the people of his time. The final hope for Israel would be Jesus. The son of promise, the one whom God preserved and through whom would bless not only Israel, but the world, fully keeping his promises to Abraham. God always keeps his promises, not on our timetable and not according to how we design things, and that's how Jesus was. God didn't do things in a way that Israel expected, nor on the timetable that they expected but He kept His promises. And if He didn't spare His Son and brought Him to His people after millennia through lots of bends in the path, He will not withhold any good thing that you need. I promise you that. And as a response, I think the second major thing we find in this text is that because He is trustworthy and we are prone to doubt because both those things are true, because He is trustworthy and we are prone to doubt you must seek him with hearts of submissive trust and gratitude. You find here in this text that Jacob has all this family. It's not a great nation yet. She would become that later. When Moses recorded these things for the people of Israel, she had grown into a relatively strong nation, at least numerically. But God had blessed Jacob, which is rather striking because Abraham looked like he would never have a kid. And then he did. And and he had some kids and then they had kids and now they're at least a relatively big family enough for a pretty big family reunion if they got together and as Jacob takes his relatively large family now and all the stuff they had for they were very wealthy what do we find Jacob Israel doing here at the beginning of this text he comes down to the southern border and he makes sacrifices and we shouldn't just skip over that this is significant Why did he do that? His sacrifices, I think, say two things to us. First of all, they were expressions of thankfulness, that God had preserved his family and would continue to do so. It was Jacob's way of saying to God, thank you for what you've done. But they were also forward-looking. They were expressions that he would continue to trust God. So through these sacrifices, Jacob is saying two things. I'm grateful for how you've preserved us. And then secondly, I'm believing that you will continue to do that very thing. What happens every time we get together? We, we don't build altars of stone and pour oil on them and sacrifice a goat. If we did that, the cops would be here. They would think we were lunatics. But in a sense, that's what we do every single Sunday. Sunday. It's a sacrifice of worship. Because our paths are windy, because we're often marked by bewilderment and and distrust, and, and we can't see our way ahead, yet we gather together again. And we're saying, thank you for how you've preserved us, even through the winding path. And despite the fact that I can't see around the next bend, I'm trusting that how you've always protected your people as you've always provided for us, you'll do it for us again. And what's the chief reason we know that? Because through the winding path of Israel's history, he kept his promises of redemption. How can you know, how can we know, that as we gather week after week after week, as a covenant body of people, how can we know that he will preserve us, that he will do well, that it will all work out in the end? Not because we hope so, not because we're strong, not because we're clever. It's because of the gospel. The gospel is the promise of God, the unbreakable promise that despite the fact that we can't see the way ahead, that we're going to be okay. So Jacob's sacrifices here, he didn't see the way ahead, and he had lots of pain from the past, but he saw some of the design of God. And he believed that though he couldn't see the way ahead, that God would keep good design, that God would take care of his family, and so he sacrifices. And so, my loved ones, because your God is trustworthy, and because we collectively are prone to doubt, we must seek him with hearts of submissive trust and gratitude. It's not easy to come together on a weekly basis when you don't feel like it. It's not easy to come to small group And interact with your brothers and sisters when you don't feel like it. It's not easy to read God's word on a consistent basis in private worship or with your family when you don't feel like it. But I'm telling you that God has designed corporate worship, small groups, private time with Him, so that your faith might be renewed day by day by day. And the reason that we turn outward is because we learn to trust ourselves. We think that if we'll do so, that that life will work out okay. But we know that never works. We know it always ends in, in frustration and pain. And God, through our circumstances, continues to call us back to Himself. I know for a lot of you that life has been really hard. I know that the path has been more windy for you, for some of you than others. But I say to you, something that I think you know, that though you are prone to doubt, your God is always trustworthy, and He's brought you to this place, and He will lead you home. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews 11. Many of you are pretty familiar with this text, but it's really relevant to what we're talking about today. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. The writer records, these all, these are the patriarchs in Israel, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The writer looks back at Genesis and says to the people of the first century, the first church who was struggling in their sojourn, Who themselves had a long, winding, bewildering path. You can trust Him. Keep seeking a better city, for He will always do well for His people. And so I say to you, you can trust your God. Despite the fact that the way ahead seems unclear, He has always been faithful to you. He has always been faithful to His people. And He will not stop now. God always keeps His promises though rarely on our timetable, and rarely according to how we design things. And because He is trustworthy and we are prone to doubt, we must seek Him with hearts of submissive trust and gratitude. If you're having an awesome day and a really awesome week, maybe this text doesn't touch you quite so deeply. But some days are coming that won't be so awesome. So tuck this away for your future faith. For those of you who are struggling deeply today and don't know the way ahead, financially, familially, relationally, or whatever the other case may be, you can trust him. And though you are prone to doubt, he is trustworthy. He will lead you home. He will take care of you. And we know this because he's given us his son Jesus and we can trust him now and for forever. Let's pray.